agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterparts, Trey Orndorff and Kristen Matheny. So I am going to be outmanned, outgunned here. Well, let's hope I can hold my own against uh, Trey and Kristen. Welcome, you guys. Hey, Mike, how you doing? I'm, 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 well, you know, I've, it, it's been a little rough for me, hasn't it? I sound we'll a little rough. Right. I, I'm sure I will be fine. Hey, Trey. I'm not going to beat up on you, Michael. If anything, you know, we'll, I'll just, I'll occupy the middle space like I always do. That's, <laughs> that, 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 that sounds about right. Yeah. Well, before, before we get started, we want to thank our newest supporters, uh, Keith on Patreon and Morgan, who is a very generous, uh, sustaining supporter now on PayPal. And of course, when you're a Patreon supporter, you get that second full length bonus episode every week that drops at the same time as our regular episode and you also get ad-free versions of our show as well as other things at different levels of support to check it all out go to patreon.com slash politics guys and if you'd like to get that weekly bonus show but you can't afford to financially support the podcast right now totally not a problem just email me mike at politicsguys.com and i will get that set up for you and we are also on venmo at politics guys. Today we're going to be talking about the sweeping vaccine mandates announced by the Biden administration, the Department of Justice suing Texas over its abortion restriction law, how 9-11 and our response to it has changed the United States, and if the wars that came out of the 9-11 attacks were worth the cost, some Biden administration announcements on renewable energy, a House proposal to require businesses to offer employees retirement accounts, a federal judge halting Florida's anti-rioting law, and issues with the public service loan forgiveness program. That's a lot, and of course, what we don't cover on the regular show, we will get to on that bonus show. But before we get to anything, we will take a quick break and be right back to start things off. All right. So we are going to open today's show with, of course, the story that uh, came out of, well, not exactly nowhere, but it was a little unexpected, at least to me, those sweeping Biden vaccine mandates. So, Kristen, why don't you kick us off? Maybe less, I guess, uh, less unexpected to me. I, I sort of thought this might happen. Um, so this past Thursday, um, President Biden ordered some sweeping new vaccine requirements for private sector employees, um, healthcare workers, and certain federal contractors. And these new rules mandate a couple of different things. All employers with 100 plus employees uh, must require vaccination or weekly testing. um, And this is likely to impact approximately 80 million Americans. Um, And then all workers at healthcare facilities that receive federal Medicare and Medicaid dollars uh, will be uh, have to be fully vaccinated. That will affect about 17 million Americans. And then all um, executive branch employees, federal uh, organization employees and contractors who do business with the federal government would be required to be vaccinated with no option to test. um, And that would affect several more million Americans. And um, this notably does not include a certain groups of people, including members of Congress, their congressional employees, um, employees of the federal court system, uh, the U.S. Postal Service. There are certain uh, groups of people who are exempt from this, but it would include military members and all federal agency employees. They would all be covered here. So I guess this is this was pretty big news, shocking to some, maybe not shocking to some, but uh, you know, definitely worth discussing this week. Lots of questions to unravel. Yeah, you know, I mean, one thing I think you think. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, man. go ahead, Trey. I, I was just going to say. I mean, I think one thing we got to realize is is that you know this is presidency stuff. There's actually two things that were happening here. You know, one we have our hands on, which is the executive order, uh, and that's uh, you know the one o- covering federal employees, et cetera. And, and the reason it can't extend out to Congress, of course, is is the president can't mandate via an executive order things for other branches, right? Uh, So it's not as if he necessarily left those things off because he doesn't think they're important, but they just don't follow in there the purview Mm -hmm. of his power. And then the one for employees, we don't actually know what the Department of Labor's final rule will be. We know we we know the outline of what uh, President Biden has said uh, that he wants them to do, but we can't really get quite get our hands on it to see what it's going to be or what 
what its kind of back justification is going to be probably something with, you know, interstate commerce. So there's actually kind of, you know, two separate issues here, one of which is the executive order, which we've already got, uh, and one of which is the the 100 plus uh, employee mandate, uh, which is going to have to come through a rule change uh, in the in the Department of Labor. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a that's a good distinction to make because it seems to me that when we're looking at legal authority, we need to really uh, separate those things out. It seems fairly clear to me that President Biden does in fact have the legal authority to mandate this for executive branch employees, federal workers outside as you said the the, the small number of workers who are employed by the legislative and judicial branches as well as mandating it for federal contractors and also additionally mandating it for any uh, health care facilities that receive Medicare or Medicaid funds. To me, unless you're way out there in sort of extremist land, you may, you may disagree with that, but it is not unconstitutional. It is within the president's purview. But that OSHA rule change, and OSHA is part of the Department of Labor, that I think raised, has raised more questions from people. And that's going to come about through an emergency uh, temporary, what's called an emergency temporary standard. And so I think there are a lot of questions about, well, what is the authority or what does, you know, what does legislation say about what would you can do about to grant those emergency temporary standards? And uh, the rule is that if workers are in grave danger due to exposure to toxic substances or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful uh, or to new hazards. And it also requires that such an emergency standard is necessary to protect employees from such danger. So there is there is legislative authority and OSHA has ruled on other through this through this authority has ruled on other things like PPE and that sort of thing. So I think the real question is, if we look at this legislation that grants OSHA this authority is does mandating vaccines fall into uh, fall, fall into that category? Does that meet that standard? And I, I have my thoughts on that, but I wanted to get your thoughts on that first. Kristen, what do you think about that? So I think that <clears throat> that the biggest legal hurdle is going to come with those with mandating private employers with over 100 plus employees requiring vaccination or weekly testing. Like you said, I, I think that's going to be a huge legal issue. Um, I think it's going to be very difficult for the administration to prove that this doesn't equip the president with vague and broad regulatory authorities. Um, I, I think it's going to be very, very difficult. I think it's going to be an uphill battle. As for the federal employees, um, I think that possibly these could be upheld. These would stand. I think he's going to get a lot of blowback, especially for the military. He already has gotten a lot of blowback for the military. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I think there, when it comes to mandating vaccines for these, you know, for, for private employers, I think, you know, and again, we'll probably get into this, but another big concern, he's going to get a lot of blowback from the small and medium sized business community, um, in terms of labor force shortages, um, especially within, you know, the ranks of healthcare workers, there's going to be a lot of blowback for that. So though, I think there's, there's definitely going to be special interest at play here, um, especially when it comes to healthcare workers. So, yeah, I think that's going to be very, very problematic for the for the Biden administration. Well, and and I think we need to separate out uh, political blowback issues versus legal questions of legal authority. And, and Trey, I wanted to get, you know, what do you think uh, about that? Because you're the one who initially brought up that distinction between the, the OSHA rule change and, and the other things. My sense was that you would tend to agree that even if you don't necessarily want to see the mandates for the federal contractors and federal workforce, that that's well within the president's authority. But you seem a little more skeptical about that uh, OSHA rule. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not actually even as a skeptical about the OSHA rule, but I'll, you know, I'll kind of start with you, each of those in turn. One, I don't really, you know, in terms of the president's legal authority to issue executive orders that change what happens in the executive branch, I mean, that precedent goes back so far that I don't, I, the, the idea that it creates blowback uh, legally is, is overwrought at best. Now, I mean, to the to the question of you know the political blowback. Let's be honest here. I mean, so we're going to be upset that we send military officials out or I mean, military people out to get killed, but we're going to be upset that we force them to get a jab. Like, I, I I just can't quite wrap my head around how we think that one of those is improper for the president to be able to do, and other you know, the other one's not. 
Uh, I mean, that, that, that's precisely what we, we have a president to do, right? I mean, that, that's one of his Article Two duties, even if you don't think he has, uh, even if you don't think he has his sweeping executive powers. Now, for, for OSHA, I've thought about this. I've looked at this carefully. And I honestly, I'm, a, you know, I'm the more conservative here. I don't see this as being an issue. My, my only thought is, is why did he wait this long to do it? <laughs> like, I mean, the fact that there is, in fact, going to be a, uh, you know, there is going to be a court case. We know you knew that was going to happen. Uh, and so the, the only downside is I, I wonder, will this matter pragmatically speaking? Because by the time it actually would ever go into effect, we're going to be at a point where a lot of people's vaccines are going to be tapering and we're going to need boosters. And, you know, again, I just, I just wonder why not, why not do this in the spring? Well, see, and that, that's why I, Kristen, you mentioned that you weren't surprised. I was because certainly it seemed to me that initially President Biden was very reluctant to step in in a big way like, like he did and really push his executive authority to, to, to some limits that, you know, some people are certainly questioning. And we've seen that with President Biden on other things as well, like we'll talk about student loans later on. And, and, you know, he was urged by a lot of folks on the progressive left to just do sweeping loan forgiveness. And his his response was, you know, I don't know that I can really do that or I feel comfortable and I'd rather see legislation. And my sense was that President Biden was sort of hoping that it wouldn't come to this. And in fact, he said that in some statements about losing patience and that sort of thing. And so that's why I, I won't say I was surprised, but I certainly think that President Biden wanted to wait and not just jump in uh, and do this initially. And maybe it would have been better if he had. I think you can make that argument, certainly. But that's why I guess I wouldn't say I was surprised exactly, but it sort of seems like Joe Biden's way of doing things, I guess. What, what do, you, what so, do you go ahead, Kristen? So, yeah, no. Um, so something that that did surprise me was the fact that it came about in the way it did. Um, <clears throat> the fact that he issued a mandate, the fact that he is he's decided to push his administration, I should say, has decided to push so strongly for this now doesn't surprise me. Um, the, the way that that he went about it did. And what I mean by that is I. Actually, I expected and I sort of predicted quietly that this would come about by means of Congress, um, that, you know, you're you're dealing with, you know, potential ramifications that are far, far reaching. You would be essentially mandating that employers whose employees didn't vaccinate and didn't submit to the weekly testing um, you know, these private employers would, in effect, have to fire their employees. They would have to terminate them for, for not adhering. There wouldn't be an opt out. The, the only opt out would be for testing weekly, for not getting the vaccine. And I thought with such broad reaching implications, it would be done by way of Congress. Um, and it wouldn't be done unilaterally, sort of this decree from the president, um, you know, kind of going in line with those over, you know, with with the idea of like executive overreach and those broad powers. It just it just that's, I think, what caught me off guard as I thought this would come by way of Congress and not by way of a presidential Cong speech on Thursday. Congress doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore. I mean, that, <laughs> yeah. as a presidential scholar, right? Like, I mean, Congress has has long abdicated that role. And each side, you know, when Republicans are, when Trump is in power, we all hail the president's power because that's the thing that's going to get things done. And then likewise, when you, you have a Democrat in power, Democrats are going to uh, be willing to have a, a, a larger leeway on that. Whatever you think about this issue, I, I can't say that that surprises me because, again, the way we get things done in, politically in the United States today is primarily through uh, presidential temporary executive action both because it is temporary and can be potentially undone, and two, because it doesn't require the kinds of compromise uh, and legislation that happens in Congress. And we could have a conversation about why Congress is that way. But yeah, yeah, that's that's a, I, I agree. I would have been more surprised had Congress done anything. But I, I wanted to point out uh, what I think is probably the best, I guess you could call it conservative argument against the authority, at least for the OSHA rule change. And that's the argument essentially that, well, in his in his speech, President Biden acknowledged that the risk of serious illness is very low for anyone who's vaccinated. So 
what that means, at least you could argue this, what that means is that anyone who enters a workplace and has the choice to be vaccinated, which everyone does, it's not like vaccines are these rare things that you have to pay, you know, pay money and go way out of your way to get. But if you make that choice, then you can protect yourself from grave danger. And so then you can basically say, well, then is this emergency standard necessary to protect employees from a danger? Well, that's the argument. I think the best conservative argument that it's not necessarily. I'm not I'm not entirely convinced by that argument, but I certainly don't dismiss it out of hand. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most effective conservative arguments that we have against, you know, a vaccine mandate, especially with private businesses, is all of this research that's coming out. I mean, Mike, you and I have talked about how the you know, the science, the data on this virus is just like constantly evolving, you know, as as the virus morphs and changes. Um, you know, the, the idea of what's true and what's not and what may be true and what may not be true it changes. Um, and, you know, one of the most effective arguments is for natural immunity. Um, it's often dismissed on the left as like a conspiracy theory, something that's discussed in fringe groups. But there's a lot of data to suggest that natural immunity, people who have had the virus, who actually have the antibodies, are far more uh, likely to effectively safeguard against the virus than than people who have had the vaccine. Um, you know, a study in Israel came out a few weeks ago saying that people who have the antibodies um, are seven times less likely to actually catch the virus. Um, you know, the makers of, of these vaccines have come out and said this actually isn't a prophylactic. Um, it's not intended to be a prophylactic. It was billed as such. It's not being billed as such now. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's being billed as something to mitigate symptoms. And And, you know, while I don't you know, I think it's it's very much a choice whether or not you get it. I think there's there's a definite case to be made for natural immunity. There are a lot of gray areas with this. And, and certainly as the science evolves, um, you know, I think the policy on this is going to evolve as well. I, so, I, I, go I ahead, go ahead jump in there, Trey. I, yeah, I, I was going to yeah. really strongly disagree, yeah. but you can go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so, Chris, I mean, one, I, as a as a scientist, right, um, that the you know, information evolves and we get better answers is, is is not an argument against following the data to the best of our ability at the time that we have it. And and, and so what I want to say to what you're saying there is like while there's a truth there that we hold things to be at different levels of tentativeness, not all evidence is at the same level of tentativeness all the time. And I think what I see, what I saw on the left with anti-vaxxers, you know, uh, a decade ago, and now what I see with uh, those on the right who are anti-vaxxers is, is they take that small nugget of truth about science and they apply it generally and just say, well, since everything is tentative, ergo, you can't, you can't draw any meaningful conclusions. And, and that's not the case. So, for example, the RNA vaccine provides a significant amount of protection uh, against the virus. And while it is true that there is, you, you uh, develop natural immunities, the fact that you can doesn't mitigate the fact that your likelihood of death to take that route is statistically and undeniably uh, orders of level higher. So, I mean, yeah, we could have immediately exposed everyone to the virus and the people who lived would have, you know, would, would then have immunity and live. But, I mean, what that argument glosses over is all the death <laughs> that would then uh, uh, come about. So I'm just kind of curious, like, I, I hear and get what you're saying, but I surely you don't think that all science is tentative, I think, quite in the way that you're saying there. And Secondly, I mean, would you really want to have just everybody being exposed simultaneously and then just kind of have a, well, who, who comes out of that? I, I'm just, I, I'm honest, curious question. Two questions. Okay, so I'll address the second question first because it's stuck in my head more. Sure. Um, I have a hard time understanding the argument if the vaccine is not a prophylactic. Um, if the vaccine is not a prophylactic, I have a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that you're forcing people to get a vaccine that's not a prophylactic to guard them against something that somebody else can't be guarded against because they have because they received the vaccine and they believe it to be a prophylactic. So if you have multiple employees 
uh, at an organization, at a, at a private company, let's say, who received the vaccine, um, they are no more guarded against the virus than people who have not had the vaccine. All the Can vaccine I, wait, tests- Wait, 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 wait. I'm, I'm gonna stop okay. you right there and say that that is, that is false. How is it false? The data clearly shows that the infection rate against, say, for example, the Delta virus most recently is not as prevalent among vaccinated versus unvaccinated. So while it's not a 100% to say that it is no different is false. Okay. I, you well, and I, I agree to disagree. Oh, I think, I think in well, part we need to make a distinction about what we mean by prophylactic. And it, from what I'm hearing, Kristen, it sounds like what you're saying is that if people are expecting to get the vaccine and be completely protected again, you will not get COVID if you get this vaccine. That is false. And I agree with you that that absolutely is false. So in that sense, it's not a prophylactic. But from Trey's, from what I hear from Trey's perspective is that that may be true. But the data clearly shows that if you get COVID under either condition, your chances of developing a serious hospitalizable or, or case that results in death are orders of magnitude smaller if you have it. So in that sense, it's a prophylactic against serious consequences from the virus as opposed to getting the virus altogether. And so maybe we can kind of agree at least on that ground. Does that, does that make sense? I guess. Um, yeah. I guess it makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I, I well, one other thing I wanted to mention about this, there are carve outs for uh, uh, bona fide religious uh, exceptions. There are carve outs for medical exceptions because some people, of course, can't get the virus. And in terms of penalties, we didn't talk about employers can be fined up to $14,000, I believe, for first violation and then more for subsequent violations. And I was glad to see that it was only applying to uh, businesses with 100 or more employees because, as Kristen, you pointed out, smaller businesses may have uh, a lot more trouble with that sort of thing. There was one other weird sort of uh, requirement, I guess. Uh, if I read this correctly, and I'm, I'm focused on these things because I, of course, am employed by a public institution that is run by a state, in my case, Kentucky. And there was a weird bit that said that states that run their own OSHA programs that have been approved by the federal government, that's 22 states, I believe, including, uh, including Kentucky and a bunch of other states, that they are required to adopt a similar rule that's at least as stringent as this OSHA rule that's coming out. And also, and here's the weird part, that they also need to apply this rule to their state and local employees. And that was the one part that seemed to me to be maybe going beyond what OSHA can actually do, because, of course, OSHA rules only apply to federal or only apply, can apply to state and local governments. There's that state sovereignty issue in there. So if there's any part of this that I think is likely to be overturned, and, and, and part of this depends on how the OSHA rule comes out, that it would be that part. And that would be a bummer for me because I would love it if uh, Kentucky state employees were required or mandated to get a vaccine. That would be great as far as I was concerned, though it wouldn't cover students at NKU and other institutions, which is you know <laughs> sort of a bummer. I think there's a way the president could do that, but he didn't, you know, didn't do that. So uh, that to me is maybe the one instance in which I can say I don't see courts necessarily sustaining that. But everything else, I think, number one, is probably going to be sustained in the well, in the end. But I'd also think it's fairly likely that given given the reaction for, from Republican governors, clearly the lawsuits, as Trey, you pointed out, are going to happen very, very quickly as soon as this rule comes out. And I think it's likely that somebody is going to find a district judge who is going to be willing to issue a nationwide injunction. And so this will be halted at least temporarily, though I expect it will move itself up the chain fairly quickly, given the nature of what we're dealing with. And uh, in the end, though, I think the Supreme Court will will uh, allow this most of this, if not all of it, to to go forward. Now, in terms of the wisdom of it, that's a different question. It's whether it's good public policy, I happen to think it is. But uh, but but yeah, it, you know. And the other thing I wanted to mention is the reaction. We we often talk on the show about how people just you know kind of freak out, both on the left and the right. And wow, the freak out from a lot of these Republican governors, South Carolina's governor, 
Um, he said uh, on Twitter, of course, right, that Democrats and the, President Biden and the radical Democrats have declared war against capitalism, thumbed their noses at the Constitution and empowered our enemies abroad. Rest assured, we will fight them to the gates of hell to protect the liberty and livelihood of every South Carolinian. And I thought, wow, the gates of hell, the gates of hell. I am not even kidding. So there you there you go. Um, and wow, take a take a pill, do something there, Henry McMaster, because you are overreacting in a serious way, I think. I'm not even sure where to start with that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, there's one thing about objecting, but fighting to the gates of hell. You know, it made me think about, I don't know why, made me think about uh, 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 Wallace standing in front of the gates of the university saying, you know, segregation now, segregation forever. You are not come in. I don't know. We're going to have to send a... Well, not only that, but like, who, I mean, are you fighting towards hell? Are you fighting to prevent them from getting to hell? Like, I have all kinds of questions about that metaphor. Okay. <laughs> <I really did. laughs> It it's it sounds good. It it sounds know. good on Twitter. Um, it does, but, I guess it sounds good. But you know, let let's talk about this because we've been talking about the the legalities and the politics of it, but we haven't really talked about it a whole lot in terms of what we think about it as policy. And I, I mentioned briefly that I actually think it's good policy. I think it's unfortunate because I would have preferred that this happened at the state level, uh, definitely. But, you know, if we take a look at vaccination rates, the U.S. is at 53 percent fully vaccinated. That's 39th in the world, uh, which is not you don't want to be 39th in this below a lot of big countries like Spain, Canada, the U.K., Italy, France, Germany, Israel, to name obviously just a few. There are 30 something more. And you know, it seems to me that this order, which covers around, it would be probably around 100 million workers all toll. I think that's going to be very likely to move that number up and prevent a lot of sicknesses and deaths. And while I would have liked to have seen it happen through governors and state legislatures, that wasn't happening. You know, uh, uh, President Biden mentioned, you know, very disappointed with the Republican governors in particular who have been, as he put it, so cavalier with the health of these kids, with the health of their communities. And, you know, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's regrettable that this had to happen through executive action, but I think it did. And so that's why I believe it's good policy. What do you guys think? So I think um, <laughs> it's hard for me to separate politics from, from the policy because I feel like this week there's just been, especially towards the end of the week and yesterday, there was this firestorm on not just social media, but just on, you know, the typical rounds of nighttime news shows, you know, pundits were were up in arms on the left, on the right. Like you said, everybody tends to overreact and have sort of a knee jerk reaction to stuff like this. Um, I think um, I mean, obviously, that, you know, the, the statements of Governor McMaster are pretty, you know, hyperbolic, um, you know, and, and, and he wasn't the only one across the country. I think that stuff, you know, just in terms of politics plays well to his base plays well to, you know, a lot of the base on the conservative side, you know, conservative Republicans, to, you know, talk of hell and death tends to resonate with them for obvious reasons. Um, but, you know, I think um, just in terms of uh, policy, I think, again, I think there are going to be some battles that, you know, President Biden is going to have to face. Um, I personally do not think that, that this is good policy. Um, I think there are a lot of things to consider, uh, namely the fact that there's kind of been this characterization. And again, it's it's difficult to separate the politics from the policy, but I think it, it plays into the policy heavily. It's difficult to separate politics and the vaccinated and, and the unvaccinated. There are a lot of people who aren't necessarily like quote unquote MAGA who are refusing to get vaccinated for a number of reasons. Um, you know, the largest group of unvaccinated people are people of color, um, particularly uh, African American people, um, uh, Latin American people, people who you know have you know cultural deep seated reservations about these vaccines. And I think one of the biggest failures of of this you know this effort to roll out the vaccine has been in messaging. Um, you know, no no expense was spared in terms of marketing this vaccine. Um, but unfortunately, it was kind of drowned out in places like social media and on these nighttime media shows by people who, um, you know, were very patronizing and very chastising. And I think 
you know, obviously, I think President Biden's messaging on Thursday was very patronizing. Um, and, you know, if I was a person who, you know, had my doubts, maybe some deep seated cultural doubts, maybe, you know, I had, you know, doubts about the science behind the vaccine or whatever, it wouldn't be the way to do it. Um, and forcing the hand of Republican governors and saying that, you know, he's going to use his power somehow unilaterally to come after these governors is is not going to play well politically. And I don't think it's going to play well in terms of policy either what do you think trey in terms of policy yeah i think the only thing i'm going to add here is is that i see this as being a reoccurring pattern in uh, american politics in in our federal system we 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 have ended up and, and we saw this happening with civil rights states will do things that large swaths of america find wrong and immoral uh and or disastrous and in the face of that, the federal government either, uh, it, it, for some people's view, necessarily or unnecessarily steps in to fill that uh, vacuum. And I, and I think in a few years, it'll be it'll be the same way here. I, I think the tide of history is moving in a particular direction. Uh, and, and, and I think that's one of the reasons that federalism continues to be more and more asymmetric uh, is is when that we're not okay with the idea that you can have, you know, you can't have segregation in South Carolina. You can't have segregation. Well, it's got, and and I think this is going to be one of those issues. So will this change federalism some? Probably. Um, Yes. Uh, Is it, is it the right thing or the wrong thing to do? I think, I I think historically speaking that that's where we've always wanted to have our final answers be is at, at the national level. Um, you know, so for Abbott and for others, you know, they're going to they're going to fuss about this. But I think one day in the future, we'll look back on them in the same. And I think history in general, will look back on them in the same way that we looked at, uh, at, at the civil rights. Wow. OK, well, you know, and, and, and you mentioned the federalism thing. And this kind of is, a, I think, a pretty nice segue into our next story, right, about Texas and abortion and so forth. But before we get into that, we do need to take just a quick break, and we will be right back with that. All right, so, yeah, we are back. And, Kristen, why don't you go ahead and get us going on that second story involving Texas and the abortion restrictions. Yeah, so um, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced on Thursday that the DOJ sued the state of Texas to block its new law, which banned physicians from performing abortions in situations where a, quote, detectable fetal heartbeat is present. Um, Attorney General Garland said the obvious and expressly acknowledged intention of the statutory scheme is to prevent women from exercising their constitutional rights by thwarting judicial review for as long as possible. And this was, of course, in response to the fact that uh, Texas placed enforcement of this law in the hands of private parties, not state and local officials, which was a bit irregular. Um, And while the lawsuit makes a case that the ban violates the constitutional uh, supremacy clause, which states that federal law is uh, supreme to state law, of course. Uh, Legal experts believe that the suit also faces a number of other challenges uh, going forward, including having the suit tossed due to uh, an inability to sue on behalf of the women of Texas. That was kind of the one that was mentioned a lot in the news uh, yesterday in particular. So, yeah, so we're dealing with a lawsuit uh, between the DOJ and the state of Texas. Um, This made quite a bit of news uh, towards the end of the week. So, yeah, I guess that'll get us started. There are some obvious questions we need to answer. How do you feel about it? <laughs> well, you know, Jay and I talked about this uh, a bit last week, and yeah. so I've maybe get open tray. We haven't heard your thoughts on on this one. Well, it's fair. You know, I, I oftentimes hide from abortion like a coward. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who doesn't? I, honestly, who doesn't? It's 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 hard. Anyway, you slice it. You know. Yeah, well, see, I guess part of the so here's here here's my kind of on the abortion side, and then we need to talk about the DOJ side just to get everybody up to speed. Is uh, the on the abortion side, I am really it's hard for me because I, I don't it, I don't think that life necessarily starts at conception or starts in a way that necessarily has uh, legal protection. But likewise, I'm not as cavalier, I think, with uh, the right of unborns in the way that I sometimes see from the left. Um, and I probably tend to be more conservative on this in part because 
if you're not sure, and I think that I think most of us should be willing to say that we're unsure, that if you're unsure, you often need to err on the side of caution, right? Like if one is not sure about the right of uh, of this um, potential person, you know, you have to kind of uh, uh, weigh, weigh on its side. That being said, though, I think in terms of the of the law of Texas, and you guys had really covered that well uh, mm-hmm. last week, but the the idea that we're going to have this come through as a private enforcement mechanism, or what the Supreme Court called this unusual <laughs> complication, uh, I, you know that that's where I think you're really going to have the 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 power of the DOJ suit. And if I've learned anything from Ken. Uh, and and reading more law than I had in the past, it's that those issues of standing are really flexible. Uh, And so it's really going to come down to how important judges think that this is. You just got to convince a judge this is important enough. The idea that you have kind of that hard and fast, well, do you actually have the standing to sue, I think is a lot more fuzzy than I I, I would have argued, you know, a few years ago. Yeah. You know, and I think that's what you bring up is it's important to separate sort of the substantive issue from the way in which uh, Texas created, crafted its law. Uh, Christian, I like the word you used. I think irregular was the word you used. I think. <laughs> and I think that's good because I, everyone knows, right? Everyone knows that Texas designed this so it would make it really hard for anyone to have standing to to sue. And the Supreme Court basically said, yeah, um, we're going to wait for this to play out in the lower courts. We don't want to issue an emergency injunction. So this is different, right? Because this is the Justice Department just saying, okay, fine, we'll take this through the federal court system. And here's our case. And, And I think they expect, they hope that the federal judge will issue that injunction. But to me, the facts of the matter, the 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 primary factor is that whether or not you you craft it so that private citizens are working as abortion bounty hunters or whether the state enforces it, there's still that issue of, you know, the, the line of Supreme Court precedents saying that a woman has a constitutional right to terminate a pregnancy before fetal viability. And that may change. Certainly, there's the Mississippi case that the court will be hearing in its next term that could possibly change that. But for right now, that is, in fact, the law of the land. And so Attorney General Garland is, it seems to me, absolutely right that just based on that, that this law is clearly unconstitutional. And I mean, if I were a federal judge, I certainly would would enjoy this law from being carried out on on those grounds. Yeah, I mean, it all comes down to whether or not you think that the if private citizens doing it exempt it exempt excuse me exempt it from review you open a bizarre can of worms legally uh you know as uh, as as some of our friends over in reason pointed out uh the magazine reason um you know if if you're okay, if this mechanism can work what's going to stop you know California from having a uh, anti-gun mandate where if you snitch on your neighbor, you get $10,000 if he's got a handgun in his house, right? Um, you know, there, there's no necessary way. I mean, you, you could circumvent a number of potential constitutional rights, uh, especially ones that are uh, sometimes disputed. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I would think yeah. I was going to say I would think that no matter how you feel about abortion, that this idea of citizen enforcement, in, in a sense, would would give almost everyone pause or most people pause, you know. And, and and I think that to me is is a is sort of the larger issue here, even. Yeah, I think the two issues that I see going on, and and uh, Trey touched on a, on both of them a little bit, um, is first of all, the idea that standing, that this issue of standing is very malleable. And, um, you know, we talked about, I know in 2020, there were several abortion issue related cases that that came through the Supreme Court and came through federal courts of appeal. And we discussed several of them, uh, Mike, you and I on the show. And in some cases, there were standing issues. And what always ends up happening is if there is, if there does, you know, if a standing issue does essentially become an obstacle, um, you know, the, the, you know, the, the suing party kind of regroups, recalibrates, you know, uh, reforms their argument, refiles, you know, or, or files a new lawsuit, essentially. And, then suddenly that standing issue isn't an issue anymore. And I think, um, you know, the fact that 
we we have these issues that I guess in in looking into the future, I don't think it's going to be an obstacle forever. I think even if standing does affect this lawsuit, the DOJ is simply going to regroup, recalibrate, and come back with something new. And um, it just kind of goes to show the the constant sort of malleability of the court system and, and of the issue of standing. It's constantly being um, poked at and changed. And, you know, it's, it's, it's good in some ways. It's bad in some ways. I guess if you're on one side of the issue or on the other side of the issue, you're, you're going to see it as good or bad. But it, it just is. Um, um, it's just sort of the way things are. And the other issue uh, that I see with this is what I, again, like to, it, it is a regular that these private entities are sort of the enforcers. And I agree with you, Trey, that there are a lot of issues that sort of, you know, dovetail with other issues like, for example, gun ownership. Um, uh, I, I also read some, I probably read the same article in Reason, but I, Reason is one of the yeah. first sources <laughs> that I consult um, always. And, it, and it's actually like over time, it's become one of my favorite sources to consult because I almost always agree with what Reason has to say. But, um, you know, I, I think that that's a big, big issue. Um, and I think what it ultimately will do is kind of like what happens in Cuba with the come mierdas, where, you know, you, you essentially have neighbors ratting on neighbors, like you said, um, it sort of turns us into, um, you know, something that, that, that we've tried to avoid for decades. Um, and, and exactly what the law aims to do is not what's going to happen. So, you know, I, I think solving it this way, I, I think, um, you know, this, this, particular judge makes a really, uh, or I'm sorry, this particular, you know, Attorney General, J Attorney General Garland makes a really effective case in this lawsuit for the fact that there's nothing regular about this. It's very irregular. Um, you know, it's thwarting judicial review for as long as possible. It's a tactic. Um, it's a tactic that the state of Texas employed to kind of get around, you know, a lawsuit. Who exactly do you sue? If it's just sort of like these nameless, faceless private entities, who, do you, who is it that you sue? If something happens um, and it, you know, it kind of clears obstacles, but then it presents more and different obstacles. So, yeah, I mean, I see those as two really big issues going forward. My personal feelings about the, the issue aside, and I'm also very conflicted, Trey, like you are in a lot of ways. Like, And, and my opinions about abortion and abortion rights have changed over time. They've kind of gone back and forth. But, you know, just in terms of looking at this in terms of policy, I don't I don't see this standing. I see this you know, facing a lot of obstacles. This yeah, in all honesty, if, if, I, I think we should just put a prediction out there. I, I think, you know, sometimes we talk about, well, what's, it's hard to kind of murky and make predictions. I think this one is straightforward. I think sooner or later, this gets struck, the Texas part gets struck down. And then yeah, to Mike, to your earlier point, uh, I don't think the Supreme Court changes the underlying concept of viability, but I think at some point, given the makeup of the court, what is considered to be viability will be moved back. A little, at least some. And I, and I think those are the two things that I'm willing to make predictions on. One, the law strikes down. Two, you don't have a wholesale abortion change, but rather where the court decides viability is shifts. And, and it's done it before, so it wouldn't be shocking to see it happen again. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily think it would be where viability shifts, because that's pretty, I see what you're saying, because that's pretty standard. I mean, it's at, you know, when a fetus can survive outside of the womb. But I do see them, and this maybe goes to kind of what you were saying, is them setting up a different standard and making the argument that where, well, where the balance kind of will shift that balance to the point where there is actually a recognizable human-ish sort of being, and maybe you make the argument that that is when there's a fetal heartbeat or at 15 weeks or something like that, even though right now under current medical science, a fetus is not viable at, say, 15 weeks, and that's yeah. the Mississippi law, or six weeks, you know, yeah. there's a heartbeat. But I think the court could easily say, well, even though there's not viability at that point, we think that the interests of the potential life are so great at that point that they override the interest of the woman in self-determining her own her own body. And, that, and so I, I think I agree with you. We're just maybe talking semantics a little bit. I think that will happen in the next term. Uh, and, and so in that way, I think the Mississippi law is more uh, honest and straight forward in a way, even though I disagree with it, than, than the Texas law is. And, and one final thing I'll add before, before we move on is I love the fact that the, liber the main libertarian uh, website, magazine, whatever is called Reason. How brilliant to kind of grab that name, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. our opponents are well, unreason, but we are reason. So uh, anyway, I always thought that was a great name for a libertarian. 
did not. No, it's, it's, it's a brilliant, I mean, it was a brilliant tactical move 20 some years ago, like, or I guess 30 years ago. Yeah, mm-hmm. That may be actually four. I take it. I think it might be 40 years, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, a little self-satisfied and condescending to non-libertarians, you know, but, but yeah, <laughs> I, I, I check it out. At, Doesn't on that sum up libertarians though? Like, listen, yeah. I, I would like. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. We are the voice of reason. Yeah. The libertarian party. Yeah. All right. Well, we need to take just another quick break and we will get back and talk about 9-11 20 years later. All right. So we are back and it is we are recording this on the 20th uh, anniversary of 9-11. And we thought as such, it would be fitting, especially given the fact that we recently withdrew our troops from Afghanistan to to kind of take a look back and consider where we are, where we've been, and whether everything we did was worth it or has made America a better or worse place, I guess. So, uh, Kristen, why don't you again kick us off with this? Yeah, so just like you said, um, you know, we're recording this on Saturday, uh, September 11th, and 20 years ago today, I mean, you know, those of us who are around, you know, we all, it's one of those moments, one of those seminal moments, we all remember what we were doing, where we were. Um, you know, we were faced with one of the, our darkest days in history. Um, nearly 3,000 men, women, and children lost their lives, and, you know, we were all just sort of in this mode of despair for a long time after. Um, so now 20 years later, like you said, I think it's worth it to, um, you know, open up these conversations again. They haven't ever really stopped, um, especially recently, like you mentioned, Mike, with the withdrawal from Afghanistan and we have like the resurgence of the Taliban, a new Taliban government. And, you know, a lot of these concerns about, you know, safety and liberty. And, you know, the, the, like I said, these conversations haven't ever really stopped. I mean, not just in Reason Magazine, but, you know, just in, in, you know, new shows and just, you know, in places all around the country. It's something we've never really stopped talking about. Um, I don't know that we ever will. And it kind of changed, you know, culture, it changed politics, everything, sometimes for better and sometimes for worse. So um, just a couple of topics that, uh, you know, we had noted that we wanted to discuss were this recent uh, Washington Post ABC News poll uh, regarding sentiment about the war in Afghanistan, the troop withdrawal, and how 9-11 has shaped our country, again, for better and for worse. Um, Also, the state of security post 9-11, whether we have been more or less safe. Um, 9-11 related measures that were excessive, possibly trading too much liberty for too little security. We have a lot of concerns about that. Um, And then also, you know, the outlook for the future, this recent resurgence of the Taliban, um, you know, and the fact that the Taliban government in Afghanistan, which is now dominated really by hardliners, is something very real, something that um, you know, a lot of us had had kind of thought that, you know, maybe we wouldn't be talking about again, certainly not so soon. Um, and unfortunately, we're, we're going to have to discuss that. So, yeah, so we have a lot to talk about with this because, you know, obviously 9-11, 20 years later is is no less jarring and no less, um, you know, far, you know, the implications are, are no less far reaching than they were 20 years ago. Yeah. You know. Before, yeah, yeah. before you jump in there, I just wanted to I just wanted to mention a, a great resource on this in terms of costs and benefits. Brown University has a thing called the Costs of War Project, where they calculate the various costs and just to kind of I guess set the stage in terms of cost. We know that they've calculated over eight trillion dollars in total costs, and that's including estimates of future medical care and disability costs for veterans, which they estimated at around two point two trillion dollars. A total death count of over 900,000 that includes over 7,000 U.S. military personnel deaths and over 8,000 contractors dead, uh, over around 38 million people being displaced. So those are some pretty significant costs. And Kristen, you mentioned the, the polling on that. And right now, uh, most Americans, a majority of Americans in, in this poll felt that while 9-11 has changed the country in a lasting way, 33% it's for the better and 46% it's for the worse. And uh, in terms of at least the war in Afghanistan, only 36% felt it was worth fighting and 54 felt, 54% felt it was not worth fighting. And I just wanted to throw that in there to kind of, like I said, set the stage. But go ahead, Trey. I love that actually that you did that first, Mike, because I think it plays into what I wanted to mention. And that was one thinking about this being 20 years ago makes me feel incredibly old. (laughs) And (laughs) two, you know, that's funny, but it's also true. And and what I mean by that, and, and Mike, I'm sure that you've had this play out in your classrooms as well. 
the students in our classroom were not born during 9-11, right? They weren't born yet. And, And I think for many people, it's really hard to wrap your head around that. What that means is there's a lot of people in these polls who were either not born or not or just a child, you know, un, you know, not really being a part of that uh, experience necessarily quite in the same way as, say, the three of us were. Yeah. And I can't help but but draw, you know, we talk about how, you know, what will this look like? And part of what it's going to look like is what are how do people view it who are not the three of us? Right. So how how is it going to be as a historic event as opposed to that JFK being shot moment or that Pearl Harbor moment, meaning those moments for those people? Because those events, they change as effects on what happens politically as you make a shift from the first generation experiencers to the second and third generation remembers. And so, you know, when we, when we talk about these polls, we have to understand that we're right here and we're, you know, 20 years marks a moment when we're beginning to see that shift uh, come out in the data. Uh, and I think it's just something worth thinking about when we talk about this data. Yeah, good point. Definitely. I, you know, um, got, you got me thinking there. It was, it wasn't a place I was thinking before, but, um, you know, I, I, I'm not in a classroom, but, um, my, I, you know, I work in corporate America and I have a team of people under me who are all significantly younger than me for for better or for worse. And, um, it was, you know, and it's, it's funny, but, um, you know, most of them were born, um, most of them, you know, were born pre 9-11. Most of them are, you know, in their early twenties, mid twenties. I have the the team member who's closest to me in ages in his early thirties. So, you know, these, these were people who were around when, when 9-11 happened, I was in college. I was actually in my dorm room when it happened. Um, and I remember how it affected me. Um, and, and I remember it sort of being in a lot of ways a, a political awakening. And, um, you know, I remember sh- my politics shifting quite a bit over those first few initial years after 9-11, namely because of the Patriot Act. The Patriot Act was a huge sticking point for me because at first I was fully behind it, you know, and, and I understood the, the logic and the reasoning. Um, and then and over time, you know, I started to question the motivations and I started to, you know, have concerns about like individual liberty and, you know, you know, the ACLU was even sort of banging that drum for a long time. So, you know, th- there were obviously a lot of policy implications, you know, issues of security and liberty. But one thing that that I've noticed just in talking to, again, like people on my my team that I manage who are younger than me and, you know, we, we were just kind of, you know, spitballing about 9-11 yesterday. Um, and they grew up in a world that looked very different from the world that the three of us grew up in. You know, general generationally, it, it was very different, but also in terms of just like the structure of politics and the structure of policy and the policies that that they grew up with. Um, they grew up with a lot more, I mean, for lack of a better term, like big brother than than we did. There, there was a lot more oversight, especially in those in those early years. And for a lot of the people that I work with who are, you know, at that sort of point in their lives or in their early 20s or mid 20s, those were formative years for them. And they grew up with things like the Patriot Act, you know, and and so they're they're used to a completely different policy and political landscape. And, um, you know, looking at, you know, some of the I've over the years and and certainly yesterday, I was looking at some of the polls about, you know, 9-11 and, and, you know, not just this one from the Washington Post, ABC News, but there were multiple polls coming out. You know, it's the 20th, 20 years later. And, you know, we're, we're still talking about it. And one of the things that struck me and, and it's and it, again, like this is not irregular. This this wasn't surprising to me at all was the fact that, that you know, it really broke down by age. Younger people who were polled um, tended to, you know, be sort of unaware of what happened after 9-11. They tend to, to be younger people tend to be more comfortable with some of those policies in place that they feel protect them and ensure their security. Um, whereas people who, you know, were around and reached those formative years before 9-11, uh, maybe, had you know, they had more concerns about liberty. They were more against the Patriot Act and, you know, had concerns about what was more concerns about what was going on in Afghanistan now. So again, it could just be age, but I also think it's, it, there was just such a huge cultural shift we can't yeah. ignore. No, a- absolutely. I agree. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, when I think about kind of 
aside from the Patriot Act and issues of the police the surveillance state and so forth, and I think there are some significant concerns about that. And, and your sort of uh, evolving view on the Patriot Act that very much I think mirrors a lot of how I felt because what a lot of oh, people yeah. what a lot of people don't appreciate those of us who were uh, around and sort of adults or adultish at that time uh, the how how altogether or so much, the, such a large percentage of Americans were, yeah, Patriot Act, absolutely, let's sign that sucker, let's, we were, I mean, there was, there was a unity that was really striking that, uh, that for people, you know, coming up today, just, it's totally unfamiliar. But, but when I think about what we got for those costs uh, that I mentioned, the human costs and the economic costs, well, we obviously killed Osama bin Laden and we disrupted terrorist networks, right? We did we were able to, to do that. We removed Saddam Hussein and we installed a new democratic government in Iraq. Now, it's a pretty corrupt democratic government, but but there are regular competitive elections and there is representation for the various groups in that society. We definitely altered the balance of power in the Middle East. And honestly, I don't know how that plays out. We're going to have to, I think, wait another generation at least. But and so to me, a lot of that's sort of difficult to and when I look at Iraq and in the Middle East, I say, well, okay, we definitely did some stuff and you can make a case that that's some stuff for the better. When I look at Afghanistan, especially, it looks like the new Taliban is basically going to be the same as the old Taliban. They're bringing that, that back, that ministry of vice and virtue. I don't know that we did much in Afghanistan overall, but then I think about the opportunity costs, you know, all those lives lost and all that fortune spent. What else? Could we have done with that? To what are the use? Could those lives have been put? That's a tough question to answer. But I think this is where I sort of have some sympathy for President Biden's view, because saying was the war worth it, or were our, you know was this action worth it? Well, it depends. I think on where you stop. I think absolutely we should have gone into Afghanistan. There's a lot less of a case for Iraq with that whole fake WMD type of thing. But had we pulled out. In 2009, which President Obama at the time said he wanted to do and didn't do, and Vice President at the time, Biden, was strongly pushing for, I think the calculus is a lot different because we wouldn't have spent that much extra in in terms of money and in terms of lives uh, to get, at least in Afghanistan, very, very little, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, when when you look at that era and you ask about the what we get or what we go in, I know that there were some, there are some who argue that we should not have um, invaded Afghanistan. And despite being the peaceful person that I am, I think the answer is that was the correct move yeah. uh, historically. I think where we made an incalculable error was now was moving into Iraq when what we really should have been focused on was harassing Pakistan. <laughs> Uh, and we only did it, didn't do that because we did, that was not the, you know, that wasn't as appealing yeah. to the, to the president. And on those fronts, I think we were right, but I, but, but I think your point there, and I think that's the one that's going to be harder to understand and to justify, which is the, we, we've gotten into this mode where we think we're somehow always going to, we're going to fight our way to democracy. <laughs> for others and, and 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 that was never a likely sustainable goal in Afghanistan and, and I feel bad when we continue to task our military with non-military outcomes that I don't think are are going to be in their purview um, it, it's analogous I think sometimes to the way we want to utilize police in the United States um, you know we want to we want we want the military to, to handle all these things. And so I agree with you on, on those fronts. Um, and, and I think going after and destroying or at least disrupting terror networks w- was worth it. Was being there for a generation worth it? I think it's a hard case to make that as a yes, especially when you had, you know, two conflicts. You know, again, once you've already had, including the uh, Iraqi war, it, it's really hard to make that. Uh, argument that we should have been there as long as we were. Um, I mean, what what more do you get for the additional time? That you know, I don't know. Yeah, I think uh, you know, Mike, Mike, you and I again have talked about this. I think last year uh, that we touched on this, but um, 
you know, one of the the things that I keep going back to, as, as silly as it sounds, is um, there there this podcast. I know I've brought it up on this podcast before, but this podcast serial that's been around forever. It's kind of an OG of you know yeah. true crime type podcast, and um, season two focused on Bo Bergdahl. And, um, mm-hmm. and I remember listening to it, um, you know, which is a whole other can of worms, but I remember listening to it and a lot of people preferred other seasons of the show. I actually liked season two the best, um, just because it was relevant to, you know, some of the stuff I was rethinking in terms of politics and policy at the time it came out, which was oh, probably six, seven years ago, maybe more. Um, but, um, you know, one of the things that struck me during that season of the podcast were, you know, these interviews that the host did with all of these um, generals that had been in Afghanistan, that had been in, or just, you know, done, done their tours in the Middle East. And they talked about the fact that they felt very sort of cut off at the knees in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, they were sort of middle managers. They had these, um, you know, teams of, you know, military personnel of soldiers that they had to command um, and they were taking their orders from above. And that a lot of times they disagreed with, you know, they, they agreed with the mission, but they disagreed with the way it was carried out because it's impossible to kind of put a bunch of, you know, American, you know, military personnel, a bunch of soldiers in a place that's so incredibly culturally, religiously, you know, different in every possible way. And, you know, you know, these, uh, you know, a culture of people who, you know, go back hundreds, thousands of years and, and in a lot of cases hold the same beliefs that they always did. Um, and, you know, just culturally, the, the differences, the way that we, you know, went about waging war, I think it's important to make the distinction that, you know, these soldiers, I mean, obviously they didn't die in vain. And I agree with you, Trey. I think there was a reason for us going into Afghanistan originally, but just everything that transpired, the way it was carried out. I mean, you know, if there, it's, it's hard to say to, that you want to place blame on somebody. But in a lot of ways, I don't blame the soldiers who died. I don't believe that they died in vain. Um, you know, I blame just, you know, the, the top military brass, the, the politics of it all, how it was handled, and the fact that we were really out of our element in, in so many ways. And it's something, I mean, just something as you know, silly as a season of a true crime podcast was enough to really like shift my view on that. Because back in, um, I graduated college, Tulane University in 2004, and my first job out of college was working on the Bush re-election campaign. <laughs> and, um, you know, how, how how I lost friends over doing that. You know, I, I, I would defend him tooth and nail. And over time, you know, just, you know, since 9-11, since 2004, working on his campaign, how much my beliefs have shifted is like, it's astonishing to me. But I guess, you know, that's kind of the natural evolution. I, th- I think a lot of us have have come to believe that, you know, in, in conservative circles, just, you know, how much our, our ideas have shifted. And, you know, we we need to be careful about, you know, knowing who to talk about when we talk about the conflict in, in Af- particularly Afghanistan. You know, was it worth it is a very different question is, did we make the the, the choice initially? Was it the right choice? You know, and, and everything that played out since it's it's hard for me to reconcile that. Yeah, you I mean, know, we won. Well, we won the war, but we 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 lost the peace. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, and, totally. And I think I think had we just fought the war and done that part of it, then we would we, we would be looking back differently. But Mike, I talked over you. No, no, not Please. not at all. This is always whenever we do multiple person shows, it can it can be yeah. difficult, certainly. But yeah, but but I, I got to say, I feel like the one lesson we've learned, and one thing that I will give pre 9-11 George W. Bush a lot of credit for. He was you know, known to say, I, I don't believe we shouldn't be involved in nation building. And it turns out that pre 9-11 George W. Bush was absolutely right. So I, I don't blame the military leadership. I blame the political leadership who had this idea that we could somehow go in and do a job of nation building. And I feel like we sort of, to, to be, you know, blunt, we kind of, uh, at least in Afghanistan, sort of, you could say half-assed it, but I guess in the sense that the job was much bigger in Afghanistan, uh, you guys mentioned the cultural aspects and other things than it was even in in uh, Iraq. And and so I think the lesson for me is with when it comes to nation building, not that we necessarily can't do it, but that there's got to be some pretty significant groundwork in place. And two, it's a really significant commitment and you either go big or go home. And I think certainly maybe in, in Iran, Iraq, in the, in the Middle East, that maybe that was an okay use of resources, although 
Again, we went in under false pretenses. Everyone understands that now. But in Afghanistan, it seems to me that the cost of nation building would be so incredibly high that it's a go big or go home sort of thing. And now I, I've been on record as saying that I felt that the cost would be worth it of keeping a, a force, a small force in Afghanistan, assuming that, that that small force would be enough to keep the Taliban from taking over. And there are some people who question that. But but it definitely seems to me one thing we have learned from all of this is that we can't just drop in, as, as some have suggested, you know, democracy in a box. And here you go. You've got elections. We've we've elected. That just that just doesn't work. And we spent trillions of dollars to find that out definitively, I think. And you would think we would know that after trying it and trying it and trying it, you know, it, it's, I mean, you know, speaking as somebody in my mid now late thirties, you know, looking back just in my lifetime, um, you know, looking back at, at all the, the times, especially in the Middle East that we've attempted to do that, it has never worked out. And you would think that we would learn, but it's, it's still such a popular political talking point. And it's, you know, it's, it's, I hope, I hope that, you know, as, I get older and and as you know these situations play out more and more certainly you know like Trey said in, in this generation maybe in the next generation I have hope that things may change but yeah this this idea of nation building is something we probably need to reassess very very soon yeah definitely all right. Well, you know, with three of us, as you might expect, we ended up running a little bit long and there's still so much more we didn't get a chance to. And Kristen and I on the bonus show will be talking about, as I mentioned, energy policy, some big Biden administration energy policy announcements and a mandatory rep- retirement plans plan from uh, House Democrats and that Florida anti-rioting law that was halted and also issues with the public service loan forgiveness program and all that will be available well by the time you hear this actually on the bonus show and if you want to get the bonus show and you are not yet a patreon supporter just go to patreon.com slash politics guys and if you would like to get the bonus show but you cannot you're not in a place where you can financially support the show send me an email mike at politicsguys.com and i will make that happen for you if you haven't already subscribed to the show Please do. That really helps us out, as well as leaving ratings and reviews and especially sharing on social media. That makes a big difference. And if you want to get in touch with us for any reason, we're at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you'll find those links in our show notes. A special thanks, as always, to our wonderful executive producers. You guys are great. Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.